uh, Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 27. We're in a cluster here of three different controversies where the intent of the religious leaders is to trap Jesus so that they can have cause uh, to, to, to have him killed without it reflecting poorly on them. So they're trying to win the hearts of the people during this time. Now, we're only going to cover two of these controversies, and then uh, Pastor Blake is going to preach next week and is going to show you their workaround, how they ended up getting at crucifixion even though uh, they, Jesus bested them in all of their attempts. Now, we're only going to cover two of these because... Uh, during the vision series, we covered the third, where the scribes asked, what is the greatest of all these commandments? So we've already covered that. Uh, hopefully, it's still in your memory. If not, it's still on your internet. So you can go back in YouTube, and you can look at that again. So today, we're going to look at two of them. Now, what's very interesting about this is that we have strange bedfellows, so to speak. We have people working together who normally do not work together. Uh, the uh, friend of my enemy is my friend. And so they're working together and conspiring, and they have one thing in mind. They've got to get rid of this Jesus. He is upsetting everything. Uh, They've got to get rid of him. And they will stop at nothing to do that. And the best way they know to do it at this point is to turn the hearts of the people against Jesus, which is going to be difficult to do, but uh, they're going to try to do it through rhetoric, uh, which was very important in that day. If they can humiliate him publicly and showing themselves to be superior debaters, then the people will think, all right, this Jesus guy isn't all he's, he's made out to be. Well, with that explanation, will you stand with me as we read Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 27. Verse 13, And they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him. Let that word be in bold print, okay? To trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful, and you don't care what anybody thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Well, that's nice. They're so polite. These men that are trying to trap him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. Specific coin, he asked for. Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is on this, he asked them. Caesar, they replied. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now listen to what he adds. 
and to God the things that are God's. So Caesar's image is on the coin. What bears God's image? And they were utterly amazed at him. Sadducees. I guess it's a tag team, right? It's the Sadducees' turn. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind, but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't, is this, isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures. Ouch. Or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels and above. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to them, I am, ladies, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Amen and amen. You may be seated. So today our text begins with Mark saying that they sent some representatives of the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap Jesus. Who are they? In the immediate context, you don't know. Because you've got to go all the way back to Mark chapter 11, verse 18, to find out who the they are. That's a long ways back. There's a lot that's happening in Scripture here. Well, I went all the way back because I was curious. Who were they? And discovered it was the chief priests and the scribes. Now, if you've been listening along in this series, you know the part that the scribes have been playing. They have been a big part of the controversies. Now enter in the chief priests. It looks like the scribes have convinced even more of uh, the religious leaders to join in. And so what we have here is a full-blown conspiracy. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, at least not today. Uh, Bigfoot, you know, those things just don't really uh, interest me. But this conspiracy interests me. Because it is amazing that they were able to get these specific players in the same room to agree on anything. 
I doubt they could even agree that water is wet. These folks had nitpicking disagreements about everything, but they agreed on the fact that this Jesus needed to be out of there. Now, these three stories are clustered together uh, with representatives of the Sanhedrin who were the judicial authority over the Jewish people. Uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and then the scribes. And so we're looking at the Pharisees in Mark 12, 13 through 17. The Sadducees in Mark 12, 18 through 27. And as I mentioned, we've already looked at the scribes, which is Mark 12, 28 to 34. These groups being sent by the scribes uh, and the chief priest, these groups are being dispatched in a one-two-three fashion with one purpose in mind, to trap Jesus. Now, I asked you to put that in bold print when I was reading the text. Here's the reason. This is the only location in the entire Bible where this Greek word is used. It's the only place. And it has the connotation, it's a hunting term. And it has the connotation of snaring or entrapping. So it wasn't a common word, neither was it a common um, practice. This is heightened. This is beyond disagreeing. They have conspired together to do whatever it takes to trap him. And they were doing it in a culturally appropriate way. They were going after him by setting up these uh, riddle me this kind of questions where they could trap him and show, uh, to, to, to put him in a corner to where his teachings are proven to be untrue and invalidating him. And they do it three different groups in three different ways each of them leaning into their strengths. So the Pharisee's question was best asked by a Pharisee. The Sadducee's question was best asked by a Sadducee. And the scribe's question was best asked by a scribe. They were the ones that knew the most about the subject uh, that they were bringing in. Now the reason they're doing this if you look at Mark chapter 11, verse 18, I think we'll get it up on the screen for you. It says, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. And so this happened right after Jesus cleansed the temple. Now this is an outstanding, it's an epic event. Jesus walks in the temple, single-handedly, cleans the place out. He overturns the table of the money changers who have turned a place that was designed for worshiping of God into their own den, a den of thieves, really, to be able to benefit themselves. And Jesus took care of business. Now, 
we tend to think of the, crass, uh, the practice of Christianity as being quite domesticated, you know? We sit up straight, we're quiet, we take our notes. Jesus rose up against injustice. I don't know what art of Jesus you've seen. But I remind you, by trade he was a carpenter, and he didn't have battery-operated tools. He was working with heavy materials and ancient tools. I don't know how big he was. I don't know how strong he was. All I know is he cleaned out the temple where people had motivation to fight back. And he scrubbed the place. The chief priest and the scribes didn't like it. Because they were the center of attention there. They were losing their favor with the people. And so that was a turning point. That was a turning point for them. They had already decided after Jesus healed the man with the withered hand. You remember that from the third chapter of Mark? They had already decided they had to kill him. But now it is intensified to where they realize they've got to gather everyone together that they can to be a part of this conspiracy to get rid of Jesus. And they're going to trap him. Uh, Jesus, by cleansing the temple, laid claim on it. It was his father's house. And he humiliated those that were using it for their own profit. He humiliated them. The chief priests and the scribes, they had enough. They had to get rid of him. Now, Mark had foreshadowed this was coming in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, a text that I just alluded to a moment ago, where they were fed up with Jesus claiming to have authority. Uh, authority they didn't think anyone had but God. Well, they were right. No one had that authority but God. But what they were missing is that Jesus is God. He is God incarnate. Now, Normally, the chief priests and the scribes would not have paired the Pharisees and the Herodians together to do their bidding. Uh, these two groups didn't have a lot in common. Uh, the uh, Pharisees were not happy about the Roman occupation at all. They were looking for the coming of the Messiah. Of course, the Messiah was in their midst, but they missed it. Now, they weren't as zealous as the, the zealots were. Uh, but nonetheless, they weren't happy with the Roman occupation. Uh, they wanted it to go away, and they believed that God was going to send the, the, uh, uh, the Messiah to free Israel from Roman occupation. Well, the Messiah wasn't coming to free them, to make their circumstances more comfortable. He was coming to forgive them of their sins. He was coming to make a way possible for new life to take place. Now, on the other hand, Rome enjoyed the full-throated support of the Herodians. Uh, 
they were all in favor of what Rome was doing. So can you see we have one group that was against Rome, another one was for Rome, but now they're together. And they were together to be able to get rid of Jesus. That's the only thing that they had in common. Uh, that was a desire that the chief priest and the scribes also had, and so they dispatched them. They sent them out to do their bidding. And they had the perfect trap for Jesus. Now they asked him this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? Okay, they're asking about the Roman occupation. Should we be supporting it? Should we be paying our hard-earned money so that Rome can pay their soldiers to put their thumbs on us. Now, they had observed Jesus fellowshipping with tax collectors, right? You remember, we covered that. We had seen Jesus with tax collectors. They didn't like that at all. Now, Jesus told them, the sick need a physician. That's why I'm here. But that doesn't mean they got it. They had their own ideas. And here... Rome has their thumb over the Jewish people, and so they asked Jesus this question. And they knew that if he says, absolutely pay your taxes, then the people are going to turn against Jesus. Now, who among us wants to pay taxes? Anybody in the room? Maybe there are a few. I don't know. Here in California, we keep voting for more taxes, so maybe <laughs> we seem to like those. And by the way, don't the roads look lovely out there right now? Anybody else hit a pothole after the rain? Of course, that has nothing to do with anything. I just got a new tire because of a pothole. Anybody else lucky enough for that? Well, nobody wants to pay taxes. Of course they don't. But it was deeper than that. Don't you see? It was deeper than that. They were asking, should we be paying for Rome to oppress us? So if Jesus says yes, he's lost support of the people. But if he says no, then they have evidence to take to Rome that Jesus is, a, is, is trying to cause a, a sedition from the people against Rome. I mean, it was a perfect question. Now, on either side, I mean, the Herodians and the Pharisees represent the far opinions and if Jesus takes either side and answers in the way the Herodians is going to like, then the people aren't going to like it. Or if he answers in the way that the people would like, the Herodians are there present to testify against Jesus about what they heard him say. Check and make. They've got him. Well, not so fast. Jesus answers their question masterfully, and there's several layers to this, so concentrate with me, and I'd like to peel back the different layers. He asks for a specific coin, a denarius. A denarius, we know, is valued at one day's wages, not exactly pocket change. In fact, uh, I'm cashless, but then again, I've been cashless before being cashless was popular, right? That's not a statement about using credit cards. Do you feel me? Anybody out there? 
I don't carry cash. Maybe you do. I don't know. I've stopped doing that a long time ago. But it wasn't the amount of cash I would have carried if I did. And yet, these religious elites had no problem producing a denarius. And when they produced the denarius, it was the sure sign that they weren't like the people that were listening to them. They were the one percenters, so to speak. They were not just the religious elite, but they were economically elite too. But beyond that, by producing the coin, they were showing they had already submitted to Caesar's authority. There was still Jewish coinage. Remember when we talked about a story that follows, but we preached on it ahead of time, the widow's mite? We pointed out that she paid in Jewish currency. There was still Jewish currency, but these Pharisees were able to produce a coin with Caesar's inscription on it, layer two, layer three. There was an inscription on it. And a strict adherent of the Jewish law, which the Pharisees purported to be, would not have had a coin with a graven image on it because of Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. So with one question, can you show me a denarius? Jesus discredits them in three different ways. So just by asking for the coin, he's already won the argument. So is he done? <laughs> no. He asked whose inscription was on the coin. They answered Caesar's. And then Jesus didn't directly answer the question, yes, you should pay taxes. He simply said, if it's his, give it back to him. You give things to the person they belong to. If it's Caesar's coin, then give it to Caesar. Is he done yet? No. He's got another message to the Pharisees. He says, and to God, the things that are God's. Who bears God's image? Well, the Pharisees would have immediately thought of the creation narrative in Genesis 1.27. They were created in the image of God. So Jesus is saying, you're worried about what you give to Caesar. What you need to be concerned about is what you give to God. And you need to give him what belongs to him. The Pharisees and the Herodians had conspired together to devise the perfect trap for Jesus. But Jesus, in a matter of seconds, masterfully shut them down 
and called them to repentance. Okay, we need to pause for just a minute. We'll rejoin the sermon in a second. Don't think for a minute that Jesus didn't die on the cross for the Pharisees. He loves them too. And in fact, there's evidence from the scripture that some of the religious leaders did place their faith in Christ. They're not simply foils in this story. They are the object of Jesus' love. Which gives people like me hope. How about you? Haven't we all fallen into the trap of thinking we have some goodness in us apart from Christ? I'm grateful that God loves the whole world, the scripture says, and gave his only begotten son. But whosoever believes in him should not perish but has everlasting life. Mark quickly moves to the Sadducees' question, and we'll do the same. A question about the resurrection. Um, as he is, oh, this quick comment before we do, though. As Jesus is dealing with these questions, investing them in the practice of rhetoric of that day. I want you to see how it functions in the Gospel of Mark, and you won't clearly see it until Good Friday. But as Jesus is winning these battles, then the observer, the person from the street, the person that's watching it is saying, well, that Jesus is all right. He's winning. And so it intensifies the need for these conspirators to find another path. Pastor Blake's going to talk about that next Sunday. He's going to show you the path that they take. They find an inside man. I don't want to ruin, this is spoiler alert here, I don't want to ruin that for you. But imagine how dark Good Friday was for them in light of the fact that Jesus had won all the arguments. Their expectation was, Jesus is the victor. To the victor goes the spoils. He's going to reform things. But I remind you, Jesus didn't come to reform anything. Remember the old wineskins and the new wine? You remember the shrunken cloth? And the patch, you remember? He didn't come to reform anything. He had a purpose in mind of the salvation of those that the Spirit of God is drawing to him. That was his purpose. And nothing's going to get him off track. Well, with that in mind, we'll return to the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees controlled the Sanhedrin, and they were a part of the priestly aristocracy. 
they and the Pharisees had stark differing theological views because the Sadducees only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Old Testament as authoritative. The Pharisees accepted the, the other books that are there, plus their oral tradition. Um, so because of that, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection because they claimed that the resurrection does not appear in the Pentateuch. It's not taught there. Now, Jesus is going to show them in just a minute that it was taught there, and they had dismissed it because they didn't know their scriptures. But that's, that's the situation. Now, likely the Pharisees and the Sadducees had debated this issue many times. Is there a resurrection? Is there not? This was the major, major sticking point in their religion. And by the way, if there is no resurrection, there really is no faith. What is there to believe in? Forgive me of my sins, and there's not an afterlife? What's, what, what difference does it really make? And so for the Sadducees, it was, it was purely academic. But the Pharisees, they believed that there was a resurrection, and because there is something after this, there are consequences. It changes. I mean, it's a game changer. It changes everything. And so they debated many times, which gave the Sadducees the opportunity to refine their argument. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians did a good job putting their heads together and coming up with a great question. And if you look at the Sadducees' question, it's well rehearsed. It is a very good question that has no possible answer to it. Well, let's read it. Mark 12, 24 through 27. Uh, uh, he, he asked them, he, he, this is what he says to them. Isn't this the reason that you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise in the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. That's Jesus' answer. Their question was, they talked about this man that had a wife, and the man died. And because of the, uh, uh, the teachings of Moses, his brother was to marry that wife, the widow, and then have a child that would take care of her in old age. But he died, and then the third, and he died, and so forth. So all seven men married the same woman, they all died, she died, there was no children, now the resurrection comes, who is she married to? That's the question. Jesus' response was, they're not giving in marriage in eternity. Now, I like to think that I'll still be married to my wife, because I can't imagine it being heaven without that because she brings a little bit of heaven here on earth and I've convinced her that this text is not trying to say we, we can't hang out in heaven and she, she she doesn't quite I don't know but I said okay sweetheart if God will allow us to be married can I still introduce you as my wife and she's, she's at least said that that can take place but in all seriousness, the question is not asking us, he was not asking Jesus what's life going to be like in heaven. 
He's asking, who's going to provide for this woman in heaven? That's the question. Because she's not going to have a husband and she doesn't have any sons. Who's going to provide for her? And the answer to the question was, no one will. God will. God will provide. And he says to him, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Don't you understand? God's going to take care of her. And by the way, doesn't everybody in the room know that it's God that's taking care of us now? He provides for the job. He gives us the energy. He is our great provider. He has taught us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all things, all these things will be added into you. And then he says, don't you know what it says in scripture? And he points them to the burning bush narrative. In Exodus chapter 3 verse 15. It says, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. And Jesus points out in this text that he's not speaking about them in past tense like they were dead. That they have been resurrected already. That when he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but of the living. Then he says, you are badly mistaken. In the Pentateuch, in the part of the scripture that they accepted. In this great I am passage. We see that it's not just that God is eternal, but it teaches the truth of the resurrection that we continue to live even after we die. Will we continue to live in one state or another? There's not the guarantee that everyone that dies will go to heaven. There's just a guarantee that there will be an eternity for everyone. One eternity is in the presence of God. And another eternity is without the presence of God's favor in your life. That, uh, that eternal destiny is determined by a decision about what we do in this life with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we choose in this life to not believe in the resurrection and not confess that Jesus is the Lord of our life, then throughout all eternity, we will live without God's favor in our life because we chose to reject it in this life. However, if we do believe in the resurrection, we do believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And we do proclaim that he is the Lord of our lives. Then we spend eternity with God in heaven. It's probably the most important decision that anybody ever makes in their life. Do they believe in the resurrection? Do they confess Jesus as the Lord of their life?
Now, this story doesn't end today, but our message is about to end. What happens next will blow your mind. When you see the means that the enemy of Jesus will go to to get rid of him, there is nothing that's going to stop them. But the most amazing thing is not the means that they will go to to stop him, but the means that Jesus will go to not to be stopped. He didn't resist the cross. You see, it looks like they're at cross purposes here, meaning that they're trying to destroy Jesus and Jesus is trying to win the battle so he can stay alive. No! Jesus isn't trying to win the battle so he can stay alive. He's winning the battle because he is the way, the truth, and the life. But he has no desire to stay alive. In fact, in the next controversy, when him and the scribes spar, the scribes are very complimentary of Jesus and say that he answered right. And then there's this delightful story of the woman that gave everything that she had she was all in uh, with Jesus. And then right after that, there's an eschatological discourse, but also there is this woe, the woes that Jesus gives about the scribes. He doesn't play nice with the scribes. He starts pointing out their evilness and their hypocrisy. It's like he's poking the bear. He's saying, don't come up here and give me a hug. You've got a diabolical job to do. Go and do your best so I can do mine. They're at cross purposes, all right, but both of them have the purpose of the cross. For Jesus bled and died for your salvation, paying the penalty for your sin and my sin. And then three days later, he rose from the grave. You see, Jesus' intent was not to keep from dying. He had to die so he could resurrect, making it possible for all who believe to spend eternity with him.